<sighs> I'm happy. It's just nice to, it's just, this is a gift. So thank you again for the privilege of being here. Yeah, pray with me. Lord, would you give us ears to hear your voice anew in this next hour? Would you bring our thoughts back to you? Would you have your way in Jesus' name? Amen. So our next talk is When Hope Returns. Because Christ's real death, and it was real, created deep despair and a thousand different feelings for Joseph and Nicodemus and a group of women and other followers. Jesus really had been executed. We need to let that sink in a little more often. He really, his body, physical body, really was killed. He was dead. And yet one noble follower did the right thing, in spite of how he felt. He risked his lifestyle, his reputation, for the murdered rabbi. And we know from scripture that a group of grieving women followed Joseph to find out where, in fact, their hope would be buried. Because hope, even when it seems like it's died, is an anchor. And it enables you to keep moving forward. Now, I want to make it really clear that it wasn't easy for Joseph or the women. It was bumpy, risky, scary. Because following Jesus often is that. So it's what really happens. Wait a second, I'm going to back up just for a sec. So don't let people say to you, oh, Christianity is a cop-out. It's, it's hard. It's bumpy. It's messy. And especially in an age when not a lot of people, the census tells us, are believing in Christ anymore. Okay? It's bumpy. It's scary. And it's so worth it. It's really what happens in those chapters in our lives, and we all have them, when we've been completely gutted and we're grieving over a deep disappointment or sorrow. But then suddenly the darkness opens up just a little and the light begins to shine just a tad in our eyes. We see a glimmer of hope emerge from despair and it's life-giving, but it's disruptive. It's reinvigorating, but it's uncomfortable. All at the same time, because any adventure is that. So when hope started to return to me, after I'd been made redundant, I began to gain enough energy, I guess, to ask for help in creating a new resume 
I hadn't made a resume in ages, and I was living in a whole different culture. Um, I didn't know what you were supposed to put on a resume in Sydney, um, so I needed to ask for help for that. And then I began the full-time job of applying for a job, which everyone knows who's applied for a job is a roller coaster of excitement and rejection, hope and second-guessing. Because what if my efforts were actually successful and God led me to a job, which he did? It wouldn't mean that life would be easy. It'd be disrupted again. And I'd need to learn new rhythms and cultures, which, of course, is good, but it's not smooth sailing, is it? And it brings out more feelings. So I had to choose, I had a choice to face again, rely on my feelings or on my anchor. And God, in his grace, allowed hope to return slow and steady. And it was slow and steady. And before I knew it, I was, was becoming more anchored in, to Jesus in the messy and emotional process of looking for and getting work. He is far more reliable than my confidence level. And the irony of being hired at Baptist World Aid is that I was being hired to, be, to help with the tone and writing of the formation, the spiritual component for all of our supporters, the one who had just been kind of a mess. So it forces you then, oh, you're, that's okay. Um, and we see that same, that same kind of um, mix of feelings emerge in the stories we're going to hear in a second when hope returns to a group of grieving women. Now, all four gospel writers confirm it was women who visited the tomb. How cool is that? Come on. Come on, we're at a women's conference. Now, that's what you go to a women's conference to hear, right? All four gospel accounts confirm it was women who first visited the tomb three days after Joseph had put Christ's corpse there. And they were given the extraordinary identity of first witnesses of the empty tomb. Three of the four gospel readings this morning about Joseph of Arimathea included the detail that the women saw where Joseph laid the body, connecting, again, this prominent wealthy man with the most marginalized of the culture, women. Now, how great that God included his restor- in his restoration story both, and still does. So right now, I'm going to call our readers up again, and I'd like you to turn to the page where we have the four readings um, on the women. And we need, again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or Denise, Jenny, Marion, and Joanna, (laughs) however you want to put it. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, 
rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men and clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away 
wondering to himself what had happened. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood inside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. I don't have this in my notes, but I want to point out, that was amazing, thank you, readers. Um, so great to hear scripture, hear it. Um, and lest you think these four accounts might contradict each other, I would contend that they don't. I, I think they fill out um, a story that, as Susan, who's a former reporter, knows, and I know, that writers write different perspectives and they get different details um, it doesn't mean two accounts, three accounts, four accounts of, this are, of the same event are different or wrong. Uh, or they're just 
They simply are those things which they feel compelled to include. Does that make sense? Okay. That was my teacher moment. Um, so, who were these women? Why were they trembling and afraid and telling and listening and falling and not falling? Who were these women? Well, Luke identifies them as those who had come with Jesus from Galilee. They followed Joseph of Arimathea and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Once they received their mission from the angel, Luke specifically names them. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of Joseph, of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. So, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others, because one of those also included, I think you read, read it, Jenny, Salome, right? Um, but it's, so she, she would have been included, but we know from some backstory, which we'll hear in a second, that it was these four in particular um, they, they were there at the grave where the dead body had been laid, right? And they're the first to relay the message that there was no dead body. Um, back in chapter 8, verse, the first three verses of Luke, Luke gives us their backstories. So, He says, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. That's Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Now, commentators believe Mary, whose life had been plagued with demons until she met Jesus, was the same Mary who talked with the risen Jesus in the garden in John chapter 20 that Joanna read. Now, Joanna was married, this Joanna, not that Joanna. Um, Joanna was married to a prominent authority figure in Herod's court. Yet somehow had the freedom to travel with Jesus while her husband worked. Interesting gig. She was a woman of means who was so drawn to Jesus. She willingly devoted herself to him and to caring for his ragtag followers. Now, that meant she sacrificed her own comfort for him as well as for once-troubled women like Mary. Because there's no husband mentioned, Susanna was likely a widow or single. Her ministry was simply to Jesus, And like the others, she ministered to him out of her own means. There's also the other Mary, Matthew tells us, 
who commentators think, I think this is cool, would could be the wife of Cleopas, whom we meet on the Emmaus Road, whom, when Jesus talks to the two people. We only get Cleopas and his friend and another person. Some commentators think it's, his, it's that Mary and maybe related to Cleopas. And then we also have the sister of Mother Mary or Christ's aunt. Aunt? Auntie? Aunt. Anyway, aunt is aunt. So the fact that these women had been traveling with Jesus and supporting him from their own expense accounts is unparalleled in ancient history. To have women in this very patriarchal, male-dominated society, that was redundant, but not only devoted to a religious leader, but traveling with him, would have been scandalous. Women were considered inferior, irrelevant, and unteachable, even to the point that most rabbis refused to offer spiritual lessons to them. They'd rather teach a dog than teach women. And legal authorities gave them no credibility in a court of law. They could not testify in court. See why it's amazing that women are there at the most incredible event in human history? So, of course, these women were, of course these women were distraught over the death of a man who'd offered them the hope of a new life, new dignity. And it's no small thing that all four gospel writers place these women first in the tomb. I mean, like, that just gave me chills again. Um, So, why? Why record women as the first witnesses in a dark cemetery of the most astounding event any culture or religion ever experienced? Isn't their mere presence problematic, or at least inconvenient, given the male-dominated culture in which they lived? If the early church had wanted to start a revolution, wouldn't they have chosen Peter or James or anyone but women to investigate and tell the news of their missing rabbi? Or... If the gospel accounts of the resurrection were works of fiction, which some people think they are, well, any literary critic would call them unbelievable for exactly this reason. Who would believe a woman with such a significant with such significant news? Why put the most important message of the plot, the major turning point, of the story in the hands of very minor characters. Unless it wasn't fiction. We know this side of history. The story didn't end with Christ's death or these women's enormous sorrow. No. Their dead hero somehow became undead, which is where our story picks up. 
It's three days after Jesus' murder. So they had gone to prepare the corpse, as women did. When they arrived, they got the shock of their lives. First, guards, then an earthquake, then heavenly creatures appeared and told the women, Jesus was not dead, which meant quite impossibly that he was alive. And they were to run to the the other disciples to tell them. So hope returned, but it was scary, wasn't it? And wild and bizarre. These women were told to tell a group of men something so crazy, they had to have wondered if anyone would believe them. That Jesus was not dead anymore. Yet they had that renewed glimmer of hope. And they did go, confusing and scary and disruptive as it might have been. They ran to their brothers and friends with the news. Most of them, that is. One woman didn't run initially. Maybe she was too stunned, the feelings too overwhelmed. Jesus had healed her in front of a crowd of mostly men, but then he was arrested and crucified. Now he's not in the tomb where she knew his dead body had been laid. When Mary stood dumbstruck at the tomb, angels asked why she was crying. They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. Then she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't recognize him. He also asked why she was crying. And he asked another question, which I think is a question for all of us. Who is it you're looking for? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've carried him away, just tell me. Tell me where you've put him, and I'll get him. Jesus had given her the gift of freedom, normalcy, and hope. So I think it's safe to assume that when Mary came to the tomb and found no body, she was a mess. Grief had overtaken her, remembering her liberator. When angels appeared, and instead of falling prostrate at at their presence, she just continued to weep. And if you've experienced enormous loss, you know Grief can overpower any rational perspective, and it causes you to react in unpredictable ways. So she engages in conversations with angels and this guy behind her. When she heard that question, why are you crying, coming not from men, but from these creatures, incredibly, like another Mary at the beginning of Jesus' life, This Mary just stood there. She answered the angel's question 
with one of her own. Where had they taken him? And when she turned to look in another direction, she heard a different voice, a living voice. And again, she entered that conversation with someone she probably shouldn't have and made her most vulnerable request yet. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. Hope had somehow lodged in her soul, and she, like Joseph, took a step forward, and then another step, and then another step, after she'd watched Jesus die. She'd watched Jesus die. Now, she risked everything in that question because her love and devotion to the man who freed her was deep. For all she knew, the person she thought was a gardener could have been someone far worse, one who could have seized her or done any other thing, beaten her simply because she was a woman alone in a cemetery, and other men in that culture might have. Even if he had told her where the corpse was, Mary's safety was threatened no matter where she went. And at that moment, as hope passed from death to life, she was more vulnerable than perhaps any other time. But she remembered the misery of her demons, and she knew what she had to do. The voice, though, was not that of a gardener. At least the kind she might have expected. This man seemed different, familiar. So she paused, and then she heard a beautiful sound, one she never ever expected to hear again. Mary. What? She knew that voice, but how could the man she'd watched die no longer be dead? How was he breathing again and standing only a few feet away? When he said her name, his inflection filled with a hundred intimate memories. And she knew the impossible had happened. And this was no passing feeling. When, she, when he said her name, Jesus, dear Jesus, Sorry, comforted her, comforted her as he had before. He confirmed the truth of his presence as her anchor, her hope. And then, like he does with all of us, he commissioned her. Women in ministry, he commissioned her. Go, tell the disciples I'm ascending to my God and your God. And because encountering the dead, alive God, God, God-man, changes everything, 
Mary did indeed go to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said. Jesus had taken Mary's sorrow to the cross, given up his own freedom so he, she could be free, and took the humility and shame of all women when he was crucified as a criminal so that she, so that we, might have a new purpose a new community, a renewed hope. You see, believing in the once dead, now resurrected Jesus does indeed change everything. As N.T. Wright wrote, this subversive belief in Jesus' lordship over and against that of Caesar was held in the teeth of the fact that Caesar had demonstrated his superior power in an obvious way by having Jesus crucified. But the truly extraordinary thing is that this belief held by a tiny group who, for the first two or three generations at least, could hardly have mounted a riot in a village, let alone a revolution in an empire. And yet they persisted against all odds, attracting the unwelcome notice of the authorities because of the power of the message and the worldview and lifestyle it generated and sustained. And whenever we go back to the key texts for evidence of why they persisted in such an improbable and dangerous belief, they answer, it is because Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. And this provokes us to ask once more, why did they make such a claim? You know, hundreds of women and men have likewise lived lives of hope. But as a result, many have been tortured, thousands, probably millions, murdered for believing what happened after Christ's execution, and still are to this day. But small communities called churches were built, and women's conferences in places like Noosa were organized. Yeah, really, we're here now because a couple of despairing women like Mary ran and told others They had seen the dead, alive Jesus with their own eyes, heard his voice, and their worlds were no longer dark with hopelessness. They were alive with the light of hope. They didn't just have a message to share with their friends. They had a person to introduce to them who would anchor their lives forever. He was alive from the dead, victorious over despair, eternal, immortal, God-only wise. No matter where they were or where we are on the journey or the season in their lives, it wasn't an idea 
or a theology or a new value system that changed these women, that changes us. It's not a feeling. Have I made that point? It's not a feeling. It's an anchor. It is a person with moving bones and skin and a voice that spoke gently in their ears. Because Jesus Christ was a new person before them, dead but now alive, a handful of hopeless women 2,000 years ago in a place of death could be renewed and alive in a renewed relationship with him. And we can too. Like Joseph, we don't know what else happened to Mary or the other women, how they lived with Jesus as their anchor from that point forward, come what may. But we do know that they in the early church reflected that same fullness of life, the same confidence and grace and love that's available to each of us today and every day, come what may. Because Hebrews 13 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That truth makes all the difference for us in these days when we and others need the living hope we have in Jesus. When a broken world around us is desperate for us to be a living hope to others in all we do. And if you don't yet know Jesus as your living hope, as your anchor, please ask him to come and make his home in your heart today. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we do ask you to come and make your home in our hearts. God of the ages, Lord of history, change us. Transform us into your likeness and anchor us anew in the presence of Jesus, our living hope, that we may reflect your hope, your eternal hope to others. In your name, Lord, we give thanks and we pray and say together, Amen.